Well, my name is Brandon. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially welcome to you. Good to have you guys this morning. Um, we've been uh, this fall studying uh, the books of First and Second Peter. And uh, these are uh, letters written in the New Testament, or are found in the New Testament. They're uh, written to a group of Christians kind of living in an area in the Roman Empire, kind of around modern-day Turkey. And what's happening is that these Christians are, are in the midst of suffering and trials because of their faith, and it's their allegiance to Jesus as, as the ultimate king that's really changing and affecting their lives in real and significant ways. And, and what's happening is that their society and their families are kind of uh, beginning to push them to the edges of society and to marginalize and ostracize uh, this group of, of Christians for their faith that's that, and their allegiance to Jesus, which is really changing their lives in real ways. And what we saw in, in chapter 2, what we saw is kind of that the, the purpose of God's people, the purpose of Christians, is to both demonstrate and to declare the good news about the gospel. In chapter 2, we saw that we've been saved so that we might declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and that we might live lives among Gentiles that they might see our good deeds and and glorify God on the day that he returns. And so what we've been spending the last four weeks studying kind of throughout chapter 2 and and also kind of dipping into chapter 3 and chapter 5 as well is that uh, Peter has been outlining that what it looks like to demonstrate the good news about the gospel. And he's highlighted four different relationships in which uh, we're called as Christians to demonstrate the good news about the gospel. And the theme that kind of um, tied all of those weeks together, the theme that um, tied the way that we're to relate in all those four relationships together, the theme that Peter connects all of it with, all of our demonstrating the gospel with, is that that we're called and we're freed to honor and submit to others. We're called and we're freed to honor and submit to others. We're called and we're free to honor and submit to authority in the government and in our workplace. Our marriages are to be characterized by honor and submission or to honor and submit to leadership in the church. And again, the point of all of it goes back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, I urge you then, live such good lives as foreigners and exiles. Live such good lives that people might see your good deeds and glorify God. And the reason we want our relationships in all those areas to be characterized by honor and submission is because we want to show people who God is and what he is like. We want to demonstrate the good news about the gospel. But as I just mentioned, and if you remember all the way back to chapter 2, it was really clear that God's people, our purpose as God's people, isn't only to demonstrate the gospel. It's also to declare it. It's like uh, the two wings of an airplane, right? If, if, the, if the two wings of our witness, the two wings of our disciple-making airplane, right? If you only have one wing, you're going to crash and burn. It's not going to go well, right? I, I'm not a pilot, but like science, right? You need two wings, okay? And so what Peter has outlined is that the two wings of our witness, the two wings of the disciple-making airplane, are the demonstration of the gospel and the declaration of the gospel. And one without the other is, is not helpful. You need both. You see, demonstration without declaration is just religious moralism. And at best, it makes you feel good, and maybe it makes other people feel good for a little while. But at worst, what it communicates is that what matters most is the outside. What matters most is what you do, not the heart. 
And that is one of Satan's most favorite lies. But declaration without demonstration is the flip of that, right? And declaration without demonstration is at best confusing. It, it's just actions, it's just words without any actions behind them. It's at best confusing. And at worst, it's just hypocrisy that alienates or, or just pushes people who need Jesus most away. Instead, if we're going to live out our calling and our purpose as God's people, we've got to have both wings of our disciple-making airplane. We've got to have the demonstration and the declaration of the gospel. And in our passage this morning, Peter ties those two wings together, and he does it in the person and the work of Jesus. Shock, right? Jesus is the answer to the question. <laughs> what I want us to see this morning as we study is that the gospel produces in us a hope that even in the midst of suffering empowers a curious and a confident Christ-like witness. The gospel produces a hope that even in the midst of suffering empowers a curious and a confident Christ-like witness. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll read the passage this morning. God, thanks so much for your word and for our time together. God, we're just grateful for it. God, as we, as we come together this morning, God, I just humbly ask, just like, I just, I just need your help. <laughs> I just feel super distracted. and God, I just, I just need you to fill me so that I might have anything valuable to offer us this morning. God, we want your word to, to make much of you, Jesus, and we want to put our lives under the authority of it. And so, God, there's just no way any of that happens without your spirits working and moving in the midst of us. And so, God, I pray that even in spite of me, even through me, that you might make much of yourself this morning. And so... God, we trust that you're good and that you're gracious, and so we ask that you would. In your good name, amen. So we're uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded and be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Forever would love life and see good days. They must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech, and they must turn from evil instead to doing good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. In your hearts instead, revere Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and proclaimed the, made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, the ark was built. And in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with all angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So the gospel produces in us a hope that even in the midst of suffering empowers a curious and a confident Christ-like witness. And so we're going to examine three things this morning. One, the hope that empowers our witness. Two, our curious Christ-like witness. And three, our confident Christ-like witness. So one, what's the hope that empowers our witness? If you remember, all the way back to the opening of chapter one, Peter refers to the people that he's writing to as foreigners and exiles. Elsewhere in the letter, he calls them strangers and aliens and sojourners. And he doesn't use that language to describe their nationality. He's not using it to describe their physical address. Like They're actually from the place they live. It's not about that. Instead, he uses it to describe the spiritual reality that must be the lens through which they see every area of their lives. This world's not their home. And for followers of Jesus, this world is not our home. Instead, like the people that Peter has written to, we're called to live as citizens of God's eternal kingdom who are present and engaged in God's mission in the midst of this world and this kingdom as God's foreign ambassadors. And the point of it all is that so through God's people, the world might know who he is. You see, Peter knew though that this calling to live as a foreign ambassador, it was, it was hard. It's hard to be an exile. It's hard to be on the outside. It's hard to be on the margins. Like anyone in high school knows how that feels, right? Or anyone's ever been in those situations. It's hard to live on the edges. And so to live in light of that truth, you're going to need an unshakable kind of hope. And Peter spent the majority of chapter 1 reminding us about the hope that we have, the hope that's needed to live as exiles. And he said the hope that is needed to live as exiles, is found in one thing. It's found in God's electing grace made known to you. As Christians, we've been called by God. We've been chosen by him. We've been adopted into his family. We've been given an inheritance. We've been blessed beyond measure. And the key is, we had absolutely nothing to do with it, which is incredibly, incredibly good news because it means you did not earn it and you cannot mess it up. And so the hope that is found in the gospel, the hope that's found in God's electing grace made known to us is that God decided to love us. And it wasn't about anything that we did and we did not earn it. And because of those facts, our faith and our hope is absolutely sure. It is on unshakable ground because it's not about us, it's about him. See, and it's the, this truth about God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace It's that truth that fuels our obedience to him. It's that truth that fuels our lives. It's that truth that fuels our witness for him. But here in chapter 3, Peter takes it one step further. Because the, the hope that we have is not just meant to fuel our witness. It's not just meant to be this hidden kind of internal thing that, that empowers our love for Jesus and empowers our obedience and empowers our, our lives that are lived for him. Instead, Peter says, that hope that you have that hope that you have because of God's grace made known to you, that hope is actually something that's meant to be revealed. It's something that's meant to be shown. It's something that's meant to be offered to others. You see, the way that we're called to live is meant to reveal the source 
of our hope. It's meant to reveal the reason for our hope, which brings us to our second point. See, the hope of the gospel produces a curious Christ-like witness. Verse 15 says it this way, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Inherent in Peter's instructions in verse 15 is the, is the assumption that your life needs explaining. Peter is assuming that if, if you're living the way that he's just outlined that you live, that that's not explainable outside of the gospel. That doesn't make sense. He's just finished outlining four relationships in which we relate to people that demonstrate the gospel. Honor, respect, a voluntary, confident submission. That's not how the world relates to authority. But it is how Jesus did. And when we respond as Jesus did, even to unjust authority, we proclaim the good news about a gospel that both calls us and frees us to no longer need to live for ourselves, but instead to find life in actually living for God and the good of others. You see, if we actually related to our government and our employers and our spouses and in the church as Jesus calls us to imitate Jesus and do, it would demand an explanation. You see, our lives and our witness are meant to be a curious thing. They are meant to raise questions because they don't make sense. It doesn't make sense to honor and submit to governmental leaders who, like Nero, lived solely for their own good and not for the good of their people. It doesn't make sense to honor those people. It doesn't make sense to joyfully serve a boss who is harsh and unjust. That makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to lay down some of your rights and your privileges to honor and submit to your, to your spouse so that they might come to know the Lord. It doesn't make sense unless it's not about you. It doesn't make sense unless it's all about Jesus, unless it's about him and about his kingdom in which your life is meant to proclaim. Question, is there anything about your life that doesn't make sense apart from the gospel? Peter is saying, there should be. Our lives should be full of actions and attitudes and behaviors that absolutely do not make sense without the gospel being the reason. See, our, wit our witness is, one, is meant to be one that provokes a curiosity. And it's not because we're weird, right? It's not because we're awkward. It's not because we only like really lame movies, right? It's meant to be curious because people experience something that they don't find anywhere else in us and in the community of God's people. That is what's meant to be curious about it. They're meant to experience Jesus living through us. And Peter calls us to a curious Christ-like witness and to that end, in verses 8 and 9, Peter highlights six things about Christ's character that should characterize our lives as well. Six things that are all exemplified in the person and the work of Jesus. He says, we're called to be like-minded and to love one another. And these things reveal the nature of Jesus. John 17, Jesus prays, Father, would you give them the Spirit so that they might be one, that they might be united? He says this because in our unity, in the midst of all our diversity, where we reflect the image of God, God who is three different persons, but one God. And so in the unity of God's people who are diverse, we reflect the image of God. 
And what unites us together is the gospel by which we've been adopted into God's family. And so we love one another like family, even though we're not physically family or blood family. We are a spiritual family. And this stands out so much in a world that values individualism so highly. And instead of living for our own good and for our own glory, we live for the one who loved us and died for us and made us his family. What that does is it causes us to long to love others as though they're family. Because Jesus loved us and made us his family. And so when we love others like his family, we show that we've been adopted. We show we know what that means. Furthermore, we're to be sympathetic and compassionate. These reveal the heart of Jesus. Hebrews refers to Jesus as our sympathetic high priest. He's the mediator between us and the Father. He's not just an uncaring representative. He is our sympathetic friend. He knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just like we are. And when we seek to understand the struggles and the weaknesses of others we put our, and put ourselves in their shoes, so that we might know how to love and serve people well, we reflect the image of Jesus who did the same for us. I feel like far too often Christians are just known for being angry at, people's, at other people's actions. What we miss is that we are the fools that Jesus served. We look at other people's lives so often and we see behavior or we see sin or actions or attitudes that don't look like Jesus. And the invitation for us is to realize that that is exactly who we are without Jesus. What that does is it fuels, it fuels what's next. It fuels the compassion that we have that other people might know him. You see, so, so too when we show compassion, do we reflect the image of Jesus? Jesus who, who wept with his friends Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother. Jesus who wept over the city of Jerusalem because he saw them as lost sheep without a shepherd. Jesus who on the cross being murdered by the people he created didn't cry out, God, God take your revenge. He cried out, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus could have been bitter. He could have been angry with the ways that all the people that he came to save rejected him. He said he responded, his response was sympathetic and compassionate. So when we treat others in that way, when we give others the benefit of the doubt, when we seek to understand, when we seek to be able to come into people's lives and love and serve them as Jesus did, what we do is we reflect and we reveal the heart of Jesus who is our king. Additionally, we're called to be humble. Jesus, in the ultimate act of humility, became a man. He went to the cross to die willingly for those he created. There is no greater example of humility than he is. He was the highest of highs, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, who stooped down to become a baby. Who stooped down to become a servant, to wash his disciples' filthy feet. So too, when we give up our rights and our privileges and our status in order that we might serve others, we show the humility of Jesus who laid aside all of that and exponentially more that he might serve us. And finally, Peter says, we're to repay evil with blessing. 
The world says that you should treat people the way that they deserve. The wisdom of God does not follow the pathways of this world. It stands out as different. When we refuse to extend grace and extend mercy to others, we, what we reveal is that we don't understand how much we've been forgiven. We act like the wicked servant in Jesus' parable that's forgiven this huge debt. And then the first thing he does is he goes to his friend and demands the, the small debt that he is owed. You see, it's only when you experience the mercy and the grace of God made known to you that you are free to extend it to others. See, it's the fact that we've been blessed when we deserved cursing that allows us to bless others when they deserve cursing. We show that we're actually free when we're able to bless even the people that hurt us. Instead of repaying evil with evil or cursing with cursing, we repay evil with good. Instead of cursing, we bless. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. You see, Jesus repaid our evil with the greatest blessing of all. His own life given for us so that we might experience true blessing, which is relationship with him. This passage talks a lot about being blessed. And I think it's easy in our world to think that blessing is like stuff or status, that blessing is 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 financial or or that it's family or that it's career or that it's just like good experiences happening, life going well. And that absolutely misses what blessing is because Peter's defined blessing for us and our blessed status not as about what we have, but about who we have. You see, to be blessed is to be in relationship with God. That is the ultimate blessing. And what Peter is trying so desperately to, to, to root in these believers is that you have been blessed. You have been given right standing with God. You are in relationship with him. And the purpose of your blessing, the reason why God has given you such an incredible inheritance to be in right relationship with him is so that you might bless others so that they might have that blessing as well. One pastor I listened to this week, he referenced how this is kind of like uh, the movie of Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And let's just all be honest, that's a really weird movie, right? Like, I think we can all, like, it's just really weird. But I think, uh, like, in hindsight, man, there's some incredible gospel similarities in that story, right? Willy Wonka, right? He sends out these golden tickets and every everyone thinks that coming to the factory and getting this winning this lifetime supply of chocolate that that is the prize right but you find out at the end of the story that Wonka has a totally different reason for inviting people to the factory he is he's looking for someone he's looking for someone who shares his heart he's looking for someone who will share his his heart for what the factory is for and what it's really about. Someone who's not out for their own good, but someone who is out for the good of others. And what happens is one by one, each of the kids reveals that they believe that the factory is about them and about their good. And they receive the consequences of that. There's this momentary joy, and then there's this deep dissatisfaction, right? But Charlie is different. And at the end of the movie... He returns, right, the, the, the secret recipe for the gobstopper. He returns it back. And what's revealed is that Charlie sees that the factory is not about him. That it's really a blessing for others. And so Wonka gives him the factory. 
So it is with the gospel. Being brought into God's family isn't the end, it's just the beginning. Just like coming to the factory was just the beginning for Charlie, God wants to give us his heart so that we who have been blessed might be a blessing to others. There is nothing wrong with loving the blessings of God, but there is something seriously wrong with loving God's gifts more than loving him. See, God wants to pour out his blessings into our life. Just You need to hear this. God wants to pour out his blessings into our life so that he might pour them out through you to others. Jeff Anderson, he always says it this way. I just really appreciate that. He says, whatever God has done to you, God wants to do through you. And so we who have been blessed by God, we live for his glory so that we might bless others, so that they might experience the person and the work of Jesus being lived out in us. You see, the way that we live reveals the truth about where our hope lies, and that, provo- that provokes a curiosity in people, because it doesn't make sense. And when we live our lives this way, it requires an explanation. And herein lies the the link between the two wings of our disciple-making airplane, the link that ties the demonstration to the declaration. They're not just two separate spheres. They are overlapped because the intended purpose is that the way that we demonstrate the gospel is meant to lead to our declaration of the gospel. You see, when we live a curious life, Christ-like character, when that's what characterizes our lives, the reason that we do that is so that people might have a curiosity about it that might open doors for us to explain the reason for our hope. And so Peter says, when your demonstration of the gospel opens the doors for your declaration of the gospel, you have to speak. Your, your, Your life is not enough. You need to use Words to proclaim Jesus and his good news. You can't stay quiet. Proclaiming him is the whole point. So the question is, are you, are you ready to do that? Are you always ready to do that? I just, I just want to highlight this. Peter's not talking about, like, have you gone to, like, enough evangelism seminars so you know, like, how to draw, like, some evangelism diagram and, like, officially share the gospel with somebody. Like, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking, about, he's talking about your love for Jesus. It is really easy to talk about people that you love. Like I could talk for a long time about my wife. You don't have to like prod me or poke me to talk about her. I like to talk about her. I know a lot about her. And when you soak in the goodness of the gospel, you fall more and more and more in love with Jesus. And your life looks more like him. And you love to tell people about him and all that he's done. And it's not about a track that you know how to walk someone through, but it's about a king you know how to point people to. It's not hard to get opportunities to talk to people about Jesus when you live like him. One of the things that most compelled our friend Andy to investigate Jesus was the incredible community that he experienced. It was different than anything else he had ever been a part of. And that community needed explaining for him because it did not make sense. And we got lots of chances to tell our friend Andy about Jesus. We got lots of chances to explain to him that the reason we act this way and the reason we love and serve him and the reason we love and serve one another is because Jesus loved and served us. 
And so we respond and we imitate him as we love and serve others so that people might know him. They might love him. They might see him. They might experience him. So Peter calls us to a curious Christ-like witness. But more than that, he calls us to a confident Christ-like witness. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it's hard to talk about Jesus. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it feels like a risk to do that. That's why Peter says in verse 14, don't be afraid. He says instead in verse 15, revere Christ as Lord. It's Jesus' character lived out through us that makes our witness curious, but it's Jesus' kingly rule and his victory over Satan and sin and death that makes our witness confident. We're to fear him, we're to revere him, we're to set him apart as the one whose opinion holds most sway, as the one who is valued of utmost priority, the one who has actually all authority and all power and all goodness. Because verse 18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, that you might, he might bring the unrighteous to God. You see, it's by his death and his resurrection that we're saved. Verse 21 highlights that. Our salvation is secure because in, the rising, in Jesus rising from death, he is seated at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. There is no one greater than King Jesus. And it's he who rules and reigns above all over and all things. And no one else reigns more supremely than King Jesus did. King Jesus does. And no one has loved you more than him. And so our witness is confident because our witness is found in him. I just want to briefly talk about these last few verses here. And I'll just shoot straight with you. The last few verses, like 18 through 22, are like some of the, the most uh, confusing verses in pretty much like all of the New Testament. Uh, like a lot of times people have like widely differing and very strong opinions on what passages mean. This is one of those passages that commentators are like, Meh. I mean, here's a couple ideas, but we don't really know like the specifics of what's going on here. But the good news is that while the specifics of the details of everything that Peter is alluding to are kind of a little bit unclear, the point of what he's saying is absolutely clear. Peter has called Christians to live lives that provoke curiosity, and he calls them to boldly tell others about Jesus, who is the reason for their hope. And these last verses, they're meant to be an encouragement to these believers who are suffering for living out their faith and their allegiance. And Jesus says that your witness can be confident because Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death was once and for all, and so your hope is sure and steadfast because it's in him. Some people have used these last verses uh, to say that uh, baptism is the thing that saves you. But since the rest of the Bible seems abundantly clear that it's not baptism that has saved you, but it's faith in Jesus that has saved you, I think it's unwise to use verses that are pretty much universally understood as confusing to be like the base for your argument on that one, okay? Instead, what I think is most helpful to, for us to do is to approach it like Karen Jobes does. She says it this way. The God who saved Noah who was being derided and maligned by his society because of his faith, is the same God who will save you and I as well. 
God saved Noah through the water. And when we get baptized, we're testifying, we're showing, we're displaying that like Noah uh, put his faith in God we and was saved, so we too, we put our faith in God and that's where our salvation is found. Baptism doesn't make us clean. Jesus does. Our confidence, our hope in what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And if you want to talk more about that, man, I'd love to talk with you about that. But I figured that this sermon was either going to be really long and get stuck in the weeds or helpful and and hit the main points. One last thing I want to point out for us here about why our witness is confident. You see, Peter says that we're supposed to be ready to tell people about the reason for our hope and that we're to do it with a clear conscience. And I think there are two parts of that. One is that in order to have a clear conscience, you actually have to be free from guilt and shame. And two, in order to have a clear conscience, you actually have to be growing in faithfulness. First, being free from guilt and shame. It's really easy for the enemy to put lies in our heart to keep us from telling people about Jesus. You've all felt those. How could God use you? You're such a mess up. Don't you know about this sin in your past? Don't you know about all the mistakes? You're just being a hypocrite if you tell people about Jesus. And we don't have a clear conscience because there isn't sin in our lives or because our past don't matter. We have a clear conscience because in Jesus there's no more condemnation. Jesus absolutely knows everything about you. And your salvation has nothing to do with you cleaning yourself up or being pure on your own. It has everything to do with his sacrifice that makes you pure. You see, our our lives, they should look different because we follow Jesus. But our lives are not what qualify us to tell people about Jesus. They do, however, affect our ability and our witness to people. Ed Clowney writes it this way, The clear conscience of a justified sinner indeed frees him for witness, but the impact of his witness will require the outward evidence of a consistent life. That's the second part. We actually have to be faithful. We actually have to grow in holiness. It actually matters. It actually is important. It's actually important that our lives are marked by a consistent Christ-like character. And that's not to say that we never sin, but it is to say that increasingly, ongoingly, we look more and more like Jesus. And that's both in how we live and how we tell. Verse 15 says, when you give an answer, do it with humility. Do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because how you tell people about Jesus reflects who you're telling them about. You see, the gospel produces in us a hope that even in the midst of suffering empowers a curious and a confident Christ-like witness. The hope of the gospel is sure and it's steady. It's good news to sinners like you and I who need saving. And it's good news to the world that is around us. We've been sent as God's people who are blessed people that we might be a blessing as we live a curious and confident witness for Christ. Maybe today you would, maybe today for the first time you might receive God's blessing. You might receive adoption into his family so that you might be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Or maybe you've been hoarding God's blessing to yourself. And maybe that's out of fear. You're just afraid of what people will think. You're just afraid of of what will happen if you talk to people about Jesus. You're just afraid of what will happen if you give the reason for the hope that you have. Or maybe you've just been blind to your purpose and the reason that you've been blessed. Maybe you're just blind to the fact that 
You've been blessed in order that you might be a blessing to others, that it's not ultimately about you, but it's about God living his life through you that more people might come to know and love and follow him. And so the invitation for all of us as we come to the communion table is to repent. It's to repent of our unbelief in him. It's to repent of our fear. It's to repent of our blindness. And ask that God in his great grace would give us the hope that we need to live for him. See, at communion, what we're remembering in part is God's grace made known to us in Jesus. So the invitation is to receive it afresh again. Communion, it's a picture, it's a reminder for us about the gospel. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us, and as he lived the life we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion doesn't make us right with God. It, it doesn't save us. It doesn't change our status or our standing with God. Only Jesus can do that. But instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember. To remember the good news of what the gospel that saved us. So the bread and the juice, they're in the back, and you just take the bread and you dip it in the juice, and as we sing, as we remember Jesus as our King, if you've put your trust in Him, then go back whenever you're ready and take communion as we sing. You don't need to be a member here, you just need to belong to Jesus. Peter calls God's people who are blessed in order that they might be a blessing to others gospel is good news to us, but the gospel is meant to be good news through us as we live a curious and a confident Christ-like witness. Let's pray. God, thanks for you. Thanks for your word. God, we are so grateful for you. Thanks that you might call us out of sin and into right relationship with you. Thank you that you might call us out of darkness into light. And God, so we just come, we just confess that like, and so often our, our witness is not curious and it is not confident. God, and I think in my own heart, like the, what I just think is the answer is just to like try harder, just to be better. And that's, that's not the gospel at all. The invitation I think in my own heart is just to remember that it's you who want to live your life through me. And so God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you might do that. That would be more of you and less of me. That my life lived in a curious way that reflects the image of your son, Jesus. That it might bring opportunities for me and for us to boldly proclaim the good news about who you are. God, we live for you because you died for us. We give ourselves back to you. Empower us. Give us a hope because of the gospel that we need to live for you. Amen.